Trevor. And, and we're, we're the, the Boo, Boo Crew! Welcome to episode 82. We are joined by the insanely talented singer, songwriter, film composer, multi-instrumentalist, and record producer, Mike we talk about his favorite horror films and the movies that made him. Film soundtracks, the art of composing to picture, and harnessing creativity. Go back behind the masks of Mr. Bungle's self-titled album tour and the band's reunion and return to the stage in 2020. Then dive into the new album and project by Mike and celebrated French composer Jean-Claude Vanier called Corpse Flower. Let's do it. When I get to the top of the world Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is the most versatile, prolific, and enigmatic figure in music, period. That quite possibly ever was or ever will be. Him and his friends formed the genre-crashing band Mr. Bungo when he was only 17 years old in Eureka, California. Their notoriety led to him being persuaded by Faith No More, which he joined in 88, and according to legend, jumped right in the studio composing all the lyrics to their Grammy-nominated album The Real Thing in only two weeks, changing music history forever. He went on to release five albums with FNM, three with Mr. Bungle, formed his own record label Ipecac in 99, which has been the conduit for a plethora of projects and bands he's a part of, including Phantomas, Tomahawk, the insane balls-to-the-wall metal of the Dillinger Escape Plan, to fronting and arranging a 40-piece orchestra, 15-piece band, and choir in Mondo Kane. There's Dead Cross, Lovage, Peeping Tom Crudo. The list is as long as it is explorative and dangerous. He's a gifted film composer. He scored Crank High Voltage, The Place Beneath the Pines, a Stephen King adaption, 1922 for Netflix, among others. He's done creature voice work for video games like Left 4 Dead and the 2007 film I Am Legend. He's got a new album out, a collaboration with acclaimed and legendary French composer Jean-Claude Vanier, who was the arranger for the illustrious Serge Gainsbourg. It's called Corpse Flower, and it will blow your mind. He's your favorite singer's favorite singer and arguably the greatest vocalist of all time. It is our esteemed honor to welcome Mr. Mike Patton to the program. Stop it, man. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Starting things off. So the influence of horror and genre films is in the DNA of a lot of your projects, whether it's the Hitchcock references on the Lovage album or in the films you score right down to the performance aesthetic or having clips from Daughter of Horror in the video for Faith No More's Separation Anxiety. What is your earliest memory of being exposed to the horror genre? It's going to sound weird, but I would say The Wizard of Oz. It scared the fuck out of me. Wizard of Oz scared the shit out of me, big time. Star Wars scared me. Close Encounters of the Third Kind scared me. And these were films that I saw when I was very young. And I wouldn't consider them horror films, but they horrified me. Later on, like when I was a teenager, yeah. I mean, like The Exorcist and Nosferatu, Evil Dead freaked me out like crazy. I remember getting dropped off by my dad to see Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. And I saw that at a drive-in, okay? That's how old I am. 
my dad rented a film for me and my brother, right? And it was Basket Case. I would say Blue Velvet. That is also a horror film to me. It really just depends on how you view being scared. I can watch a romantic comedy and be scared. As your exploration evolved, which were the films that kind of ended up becoming your favorite and maybe even possibly reference points that are still kind of a part of your creative vocabulary as an artist still to this day? The Exorcist, for sure. Rosemary's Baby. You know, I would say The Godfather is a horror film. Musically, I really relate to that film a lot. What is it about The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby that scares you? The unknown. It's not like about shock value for me. It's about uncertainty. What's going to happen next? And where is this going? Where is this character living? And where is it going to go? To me, that's the scariest shit. The internal and also, you know, I got to say, like, outer space movies scare the crap out of me, like 2001 A Space Odyssey or THX 1138 by George Lucas. Those kind of futuristic movies also are very terrifying to me because it's like, oh, is humanity going there? Wow. Am I going to be a part of that? That's a little disconcerting. What were some of the soundscapes and soundtracks of those films you remember that really stood out to you and grabbed you by the throat? Star Wars soundtrack was like, the first record I ever got. So John Williams, I will forever tip my cap to him. Like I say, it's not necessarily horror, but to me it was. If we're going to fast forward, yeah, like Morricone, the Argento soundtracks. Any soundtrack to me that could span multiple genres really flipped me out, regardless of genre. Like In Like Flint, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Incredible soundtracks. Incredible. Not scary, but just like really versatile and really amazing. You could drop a needle on any one of those records and like find, oh, it's a bossa nova. Oh, it's a march. Oh, it's a orchestral piece. That to me, like got me into listening to soundtrack music. But in terms of like horror stuff, Cat of Nine Tales by Ennio Morricone, that one's really good, really scary. And you know what? A more modern one, and nobody really talks about her, Mika Levy, Under the Skin. That soundtrack is fucking amazing. It's really amazing. It's super minimal and I think really effective. I always wanted to shout her out. And I don't know her, but I think that's a really good soundtrack for what that film is. You know what I mean? With streaming services and horror really having a renaissance period and genre having a renaissance period right now and this barrage of content that's out there, are there any other recent things that you've been digging? Have you been getting into the Ari Aster films or any of the Jordan Peele stuff or It Follows or anything yeah, like that? Jordan Peele, for sure. 100%. Jordan Peele. I was going to say Us or Get Out, 100%. Totally into that. That kind of horror is like what I want. Another one that hasn't gotten a lot of praise is that Swedish film, Let the Right One In. Oh, dude, that's one of my favorite movies, man. But the original one, they remade it in English, and it's pretty good. Let Me In, I think they called it. Yeah, it, Let Me In, it, it's okay. But the original one that's set in the 80s, it feels like it's set in the 80s, and, and uh, with just the boy and the girl, you know, in Sweden, that's a great movie, man. It's awesome. Bare Bonds, to me, very terrifying, because it reminded me of my childhood. <laughs> Being a lonely kid and like, hey, if I had a vampire in my life, I'd be like, hell yeah, I'd get down with her. (laughs) (laughs) More than anything to me, like horror films, the horror in general, I don't really respond to the gore stuff so much. It's more atmosphere. It's got to be uncertain and leave you wondering. And that's what I love about those films that I mentioned. And I think that Peele did a great job on those two films. Good God, if I could work with that guy. Damn. Oh, you know another one I saw? Check this out. Wrinkles the Clown. Yes. Dude, we just saw that. Yeah, we just yes. saw that. <laughs> so fucking good. It's so, so awesome. It's not a horror film per se, 
but it's so good. And it says so much about like parenting and, you know, the, the state of mind of parents and America in general, I think, that someone would think to call a number on a telephone pole for a clown to come scare his misbehaving kids. Think about that. Like, I don't have kids. But if I did, I would totally do that. (laughs) (laughs) We have four kids. And after watching that, I'm like, maybe I should call. Right? Right? Yeah. Ah, I thought it was genius. I really, really liked it. Going back to music for a sec, is there any music you discovered that gave you that same sort of feeling, that unsettling mystique maybe that got under your skin, either sonically or just in the way it was presented? Stuff I like is anything that kind of shames me, that makes me feel like I should just quit. Lately, I would say there's a Romanian band called Taraf de Hajduks. It's a gypsy band that just plays a thousand miles an hour, like faster than any hardcore that any of us could ever do, and more precise and just amazing. And then like Meshuggah, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know that band very well. They just shame you, you know? They put you in your place. It's like, oh, I can't do that. Oh, to go deeper, like I would say like Stevie Wonder on a vocalist level, just listening to Stevie Wonder records like Secret Life of Plants or any of his other records in that period, like in the early 70s, it's just like, okay, I should just quit. (laughs) And that's frightening music to me. Shit that makes you want to quit. In the early 90s, when Bungle was touring in support of the first studio album, when I think about bands that were truly unsettling, both musically and in presentation, Mr. Bungle was very much that. And that was the era with the mechanic jumpsuits and Trey had the porcelain doll mask and you were in the bondage mask and horse blinders. Any campiness that may have been a part of what Bungle was performance-wise in the past was kind of replaced by this incredibly creepy set list with Third Floor Dungeon from that Dr. Seuss movie that he did, and and it was really frightening. What was the genesis going into that era and that presentation? What I would say is, like, we were kind of sick of people wanting to hear pop songs. I mean, the music drives all of it. The way we were dressed up, that was just like an afterthought. So basically, we were kind of fighting our own success in a way, trying to establish our own identity within that framework. And wearing masks and looking crazy, you know, that was a bonus. We had done many tours after that with no masks, you know, at all. Was it less scary? I don't know. I don't think that had much to do with it, really. It really was about us just taking a turn, a little detour from what we thought people wanted to hear and wanted to see. We just gave them something in 2001, you released the second Fantomas album, Director's Cut. So this is a project with Trevor Dunn from Bungle and Buzz from the Melvins on guitar and Lombardo from Slayer on drums. And it's an album of covers of horror and crime film soundtracks and everything from Henry Mancini to Bernard Herrmann to Rosemary's Baby and the Spider Baby. Yeah. You guys like that one. Huh? Oh, dude. <laughs> it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So Spider Baby for us, probably like one of the best and often not talked about film from the 60s. Sid Haig is in it. It's, it's a brilliant movie. It's like the Adams Family on steroids. It's so fucking dark and awesome. The movie is brutal. <laughs> and then you got Lon Chaney Jr. who sings a theme song. Sings on the song that I covered. Yeah. yeah. Screams and moans, bats and bones, teenage monsters and haunted homes. The ghost on the stair, the vampires fight. Better beware, there's a full moon tonight. How 
How did that song selection process work? Was that stuff that was a collection of your favorites or was it the collective group's favorites? How did that work? Nah, I did the whole thing and just came up with a bunch of tracks that I wanted to cover. I didn't set out to make it like horror-based or crime-based or nothing like that. It was just like, these are my favorite composers. These are the songs that I think that my band can interpret with respect and not mutilate. And I had like 15 maybe chosen, but those are the ones that ended up making the cut. It definitely gravitated towards crime and horror. One of the uh, standout tracks for me is that Rosemary's Baby track, where you actually sing that that like lullaby, you know, song from the movie, and then it you know comes yeah. with the heavy guitars, and I'm like, this is fucking rocks, man. You know who sang that originally, right? No, I don't know who, who was that. Bea Farrow. Oh, really? In the movie, yeah, she sang that fucking thing. Oh. Yeah, la la la. Yeah, that was her. So what was the actual first film that you ended up having the opportunity to score? Good question. It was a short film. Oh, was it A Perfect Place with Bill Mosley? Yeah, Perfect Place. Yeah. That was the first one that I ever... Was it at all intimidating sitting down and being given the opportunity and responsibility of taking care of someone else's movie? No, it was totally great. The director was a friend of mine, so it was very, very simple. There was no major studio involved or no production people or no multiple emails, just me and the director. So that was very pleasurable and, and, and very fun. And yeah, he let me he let me go wild. And I did. <laughs> it's shockingly good. And you're, you're such an incredible melody writer. And that translates over to your film work. Another one, The Place Beneath the Pines. You had this piece of music called The Snow Angel, a beautifully haunting track. Well, I think one thing that your film work to date has in common with itself is that it's always like another character in the film. These pieces, after you're finished watching it, you remember the music it kind of haunts you and i was wondering if you could talk a bit about your approach to where you think a film score should sit in a movie well it should fit wherever it needs to fit i have no pretensions about that kind of stuff whenever i'm working on a film it's like what do you need it's almost like i'm on a fucking assembly line i go what do you need okay i'm gonna give you like three versions of that and then put it on the assembly line and if it fits fine if it doesn't sometimes it'll get crushed and you'll have to redo some things. And more often than not, that's been my experience in scarring is your first idea is almost always really good, but they always want another version of it. (laughs) So you have to be very flexible. And I am. So although I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, it's a great thing to do. It's a really cool thing to do. And very, at least for me, educational. Learning how to work really quickly and how to take direction that is not necessarily musical. So go, make it more uh, emotional. I go, oh shit, okay, what does he mean? (laughs) (laughs) Translate that into a musical way of thinking and then you do it and then, oh, maybe that's not right. Then you do three or four more and then, oh, boom, you got it. So having the flexibility I think is, is the coolest thing about working. For me, like the coolest thing about working in film is like learning how to work on the fly and and to listen and to interpret and be adaptable. 
I'm curious, what is your workflow like? Do you approach it on a keyboard and synthesizers? Are you humming and then go back and recreate your vocal melody with instrumentation? Or does it just differ from project to project? All the above. Yeah, it depends. In 1922, I wrote everything on piano because the director wanted a really, let's just say, low-key, kind of almost country-esque score. So I wrote everything on piano. When I did Crank, I wrote everything on guitar because it was a very aggressive score. And then Pine was kind of a mix. He wanted more choir and strings, so I had to get creative on that one. But it depends on what. Literally, when you're a composer on a film, you are working for something. It's not your deal. And that is a really educational and, I think, grounding and humbling experience. Because, hey, it's not my band. I can't do exactly what I want but I'll figure out a fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the point, right? Having worked with uh, Derek Sanfrance and uh, Zach Hildrich, did they uh, approach you specifically for these movies because of some, you know, your past works in your rock bands and stuff or previous scores and stuff? Or was it just another reason why you got together? Derek, I think, was a total, like, happenstance thing. Like, we had the same agency, and he was walking out of a meeting with the director, and he was like, fuck, I don't know who to hire for this a composer job and he bumped into my agent he goes you know that guy and it turns out he was a huge fan of mine and so yeah to me that was a total just luck getting that gig with zach kind of similar with the same accountant <laughs> <laughs> nice and <laughs> i'm not sure how it happened but yeah he got my email and, and reached out to me and and that was it but yeah very rarely do i score a, a film that where I reach out to somebody and go, hey, I'd really like to score your film. It just doesn't work like that. You guys are totally busy and music is pretty much the last thing on their list. That's okay. It doesn't bother me. Having worked with uh, Zach on uh, 1922, did you have that connection or, or did you ever talk to Stephen King at all? No, never. What did I do? I did something for Joe Hill. Oh, yes. The th Nosferatu. Yes. Yes. There you go. There you go. Yeah, and he reached out to me, and he was very cool. But I didn't end up uh, doing the whole series. I just did the theme in the first episode. Musically speaking, is there any place that you go that inspires you to write? Like, like a is, physical place? Yeah, is there a place where you get most of your ideas for whether it's bands or film, where you can just sit and relax and ideas and songs come to you? That's a good question. I wish that I could give you a good answer for that. It could come in my bed, you know what I mean, at like four in the morning. You know, I go to my studio. I have a studio in my basement. It's like somebody's man cave kind of thing. <laughs> Sometimes I go down there and there's like nothing. I just don't feel it. Other times, you know, I'll be at the fucking supermarket and go, oh, shit. Oh, that's a good idea. And then I just run out and I'll record it on my phone like an idea. I'll just like hum it or whatever or write down notes or whatever. So yeah, you can't plan how to write stuff. At least I can't. So yeah, I don't have a sacred place. The world to me is, I could be walking down the street and get a good idea. It's a weird thing. It's hard to explain. I wanted to briefly talk a bit more about that 1922 score. There's a really unique sonic texture to your work on that. It almost has an antique kind of feel, if that makes sense. It, it actually creaks and bends and bows. It's got a really unique character to it. Yeah. There's beautiful violins. Did you sit there and actually, like, what were you doing to get those sounds? It was painstaking. <laughs> I'll admit, I was trying to create this antique vibe. And so I'm glad that you said that because you never know how, how shit comes across. I used a lot of sample libraries, to be honest couple of live players but not many i wanted to keep it really minimal and that's what zach the director was like telling me like 
don't overdo this. Don't overthink it. Keep it simple. And so I really tried to do that. It was a different experience for me. Is there any directors that are on your hit list? I know you had said working with Jordan Peele would be amazing. We obviously went over the fact that it's hard to go and approach directors to work on their projects, but are there any that you would just love to dive into? Two words, David Lynch. What would you say would be your favorite David Lynch project? Where do you want to start, man? Blue Velvet. That was the one that kind of got me. The film really felt musical. And I know that he works with Badalamenti, and he does it well. I don't know if I could do it better than him but I'd certainly like a shot. So let's talk a bit about this new Corpse Flower album, a collaboration with Jean-Claude Vanier, who is an instrumental figure in French pop. So how did this all go down? Well, we met during a tribute to Serge Gainsbourg at the Hollywood Bowl, and I got invited to do it. And I was like, okay, it seems kind of, hmm, we'll see. And then I found out he was involved. I'm like, okay, it's going to be serious. You know, I showed up and we had a lot of rehearsals and we were Tons of different singers, like Beck and Zola Jesus, bunch bunch of people. And they were all kind of like freaked out by him. I'm like, I totally got it. Like, I totally understood him when he was talking to me, even though it was in French. From that point on, it was just kind of like, ah, we became friends. And, you know, we did the concert, and the concert was great and everything, and everybody sang great. I think what happened there was me and Jean-Claude just developed, like, a friendship. I mean, here he was, like, a 70-year-old Parisian guy in L.A. He didn't know what he you know, where he was or what to do. And so like, I helped him out and um, we just became friends. And he came, saw me in San Francisco. And I remember at one point telling him, we should do something together. We should actually like do something just the two of us. And he goes, yeah, I would. But man, you hear that shit all the time. And you never know what's going to materialize. And it did. <laughs> we kept in contact and we were like really close friends. We started sending music back and forth, sent him a bunch of crap and he sent me a bunch of crap and, and we made a record out of it. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> so were you guys ever throughout this creative process ever in the studio together or was it literally all done basically digitally? Yep. Wow. It was all done remotely. Modern record, right? <laughs> He had tunes that were previously written, and then he also hired a string section over there. And then what was missing was a rhythm section here. So I hired a band in L.A. and overdubbed it on top of what he had already done. It was a trip. It's like a puzzle, you know, like a puzzle piece. And how did he react upon hearing things he might not have expected? He loved it. Yeah, he loved it. Yeah, he's a super open-minded guy and not a real precious composer, you know, like like one of these classical guys that says, how dare you touch my music? He was like, you rate my music, you do whatever you want with it. He did whip me a little bit at times, but for the most part, just because we had this mutual trust, it all worked out. My instincts were in lockstep with his, which is really cool. How did you achieve that intimacy that's in the production? I mean, your vocal chain, whatever it is you're doing in your studio, it sounds like you were singing right over our shoulder. I hope so. <laughs> that's that's amazing. No, it's amazing. Yeah. For this music, yeah. On certain tunes, yeah. I need to be right in your ear. On others, maybe a little further away. And that's all just studio techniques. I'm not really good at that, but I've learned over the years how to do certain things and how to make my voice come across the way it should. It doesn't need to be up front and center all the time. It needs to be sometimes way in the background. Sometimes it needs to be on the horizon. Sometimes it needs to be right up your ass. It's just like one of those things. It's an instinct. I'm not a really good engineer, but I've 
figured out how to record my own voice pretty well over the years. Can a bulb and bullet quizzed? A snow and leopard? A phantom shepherd? Whispering in my ears. Over the years of your career, it's been noted that you have one of the greatest ranges of octaves, you know, in terms of your singing, you have like a six plus octave range. I think that range thing is all bullshit anyway. Like, I don't think that I have the biggest range. And by the way, even if I do, who cares? What does the music sound like? How does it make you feel? That's the fucking shit. This is not like the Olympics of vocals. (laughs) Making a record, I can make a record without singing a note and I'll be happy with it. I guess my response is basically like, it doesn't matter what your range is. As long as you're doing something really good and really from the heart and really organic, then the rest of it is just like, whatever, it's butter. Speaking about stuff and and how music makes you feel, this album in particular, as much as it's got that flavor of 60s French pop, it's also got a really sinister tone, like something just isn't quite right. There's dissonant strings in the track Corpse Flower, you're spouting out names of food, there's like (laughs) shocking and jarring shifts in Camion, or Schoolgirl's Day has an exceptional twist near the end. What is that kind of dark polarity shift on this stuff? It's the music telling me what to do. In certain instances, Jean-Claude would write lyrics in French and send them to me and I'd translate them. And sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. So it was on me to kind of like figure out, okay, what works and what doesn't. For example, the Schoolgirls Day, that's pretty much almost word for word in French translated. He sent that to me. Yeah. And I totally got it. It was like, oh, I get it. Okay. She's going to go to the ledge and then she's going to jump off and boom, the song's over. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like other instances were a little different, you know, where I had to really like dig in a little harder and, and write my own stuff. A lot of the time, like that one in particular, that was all him. I'm just delivering his message. 7.30, she goes down for breakfast. 8 o'clock, after breakfast, she puts on her hat and cloak and goes to school. You've always had an interest in singing in different languages. There's a touch of French here. I mean, a lot of it's in English, but there's obviously a touch of French here. I've noticed in general, you have this panache with playing with vowel sounds and your knack of using lyrics and wordplay as an instrument. There's nobody that I trusted that said, Hey, lyrics have to be front and center. You, know, you have to deliver a message. I never believed in that. I think that depending on what the music needs, and that's really first and foremost in anything that I do, what does the music fucking need? I can do lyrics or I can not do lyrics. My band Phantomas is a pretty good example of that. That was like me doing cut and paste, freaking hardcore, metal, whatever you want to call it, but with no lyrics, just as the voice, almost as like a second guitar. And that's the way I wanted to do it. You know, it freaked a lot of people out. It's not a traditional approach, let's just say. The voice can be whatever it needs to be. That's what I'm here for. Have you ever envisioned, or at some point during the creation of this, a live version of this and what it would look and feel like? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So are you saying it's going to happen? Well, hopefully April of next year in San Francisco at the Castro Theater. Yeah, I'm working on it. So we'll see. We're talking about doing some other dates in Europe, and Jean-Claude's working on that. But yeah, yeah, I don't see any reason. I think this would be a really good live project. We're going to explore it. Oh, that's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. Yeah, I can't wait to see how it's articulated live. So speaking of live, Mr. Bungle is returning to the stage after 20 years for a few shows. And those are kind of spread out over L.A., New York, and San Fran in February. And you guys are playing the very first demo from 86, Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny. What was behind that decision to do 
that demo and to take Bungle back on stage. Well, how can I say this? We had been talking about doing stuff together again and reuniting, you know, but it was like, how can we do it in a really unique way? This is what we've decided upon. <laughs> I really pushed it hard. I'm like, let's just play the thrash metal stuff only. Nice. <laughs> and <laughs> so, yeah, that's sort of what ended up happening. And then, by the grace of God, we recruited two of our heroes that basically helped us write that music, even though they weren't there. Dave Lombardo and Scott Ian. Those guys, like, we worship those sons of bitches. And it was such a fucking coup to get them to join our band, like, to redo this stuff. That really, like, man, that's like a pinch-me moment. It's going to be really, really good. <laughs> Better than it was then when we were 16. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure the honor was was theirs, too. I mean... No, I was shocked that they were totally into it. Have you guys started the rehearsal process and all that, playing with those guys yet? Yeah, not yet. But uh, when did we start? We start in December, I think. And were you surprised at the response of the fans when tickets went on sale and having to try and add shows and tickets selling out in seconds and all the craziness attached to that? That was a little weird. I'll admit, that was a little weird. <laughs> all I kept thinking was, did these people know what they're going to see? <laughs> they <didn't know> what- <laughs> right, they're all looking up that demo. <laughs> I mean, the music we're going to be playing and the style we're going to be playing in is most likely not what they want to hear. <laughs> so, there's going to be some pissed off people, I guarantee fucking to you. But hey, man, you know, that's what it's about. <laughs> keep them guessing. In your adventures on the road playing live and visiting all sorts of different places, perhaps even some haunted places, I was wondering if you had any paranormal experiences or if you believe that there's something else out there? Oh, I do. I believe, but I've never had an experience. And you know what? I keep wishing for it. And I really do. Like I've stayed in like haunted hotels, you know, that were famous. Like there's one in OKC. It's like super famous for being haunted. Nothing happened. I just, I don't know. I believe in it. Of course I do. But nothing's ever happened to me. And I really wish it would. Most of my ghosts are like being exercised on stage. (laughs) (laughs) Have you played any haunted venues that people are like, this place is super Uh, haunted? No, no, not that I know of. Can you tell me of any haunted venues that I should play? Yeah, there's one called The Rave. It's across the street from where Jeffrey Dahmer used to stay at the hotel. Oh, God, I've played there. Yeah, that place, it's supposed to be haunted, man, like crazy haunted. Milwaukee. Yeah, I played there. Nothing, Nothing no experiences? Happened. Really? No. In fact, it was a really shitty show, and we were really pissed, <laughs> pissed off, and left, like, really quick. The set was obviously <laughs> haunted. Damn. <laughs> Maybe that was it. The Halloween season this year is sadly over. We were curious about what the Halloween season looked like for you. Are you someone who's interested in the theatrics of it all, like haunted mazes and immersive experiences? Not so much. I do love the you know idea of haunted houses and stuff like that. The last thing that I did that was really cool was actually in LA, and it was with Buzz from the Melvins and Phantomus. And he took us to like, I mean, you guys must know that LA has the best haunted houses. Yes. Yes. We're spoiled. There's all these fuckers that work in films and yeah. stuff. They really <laughs> don't. Yeah. And it was crazy. It was like in the valley somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And it was nuts, man. Dudes chasing you with chainsaws. And like, it was really good. It was really good. But that's the last one that I've been to. And that was like, I want to say five years ago. So if you have any you can recommend, I'm down. Yeah, there's a haunted play called Delusion. They took a year off, but next year... 
they're going to do it, I think. And it's so cool. It's really interactive. And you walk through this haunted play and you're part of the play. It's the stunt coordinator behind movies like The Dark Knight that puts it on. And there's people like doing wire work, crawling on the walls. And people are just flying <laughs> up. And you have to hide under beds. And it's really fun. Oh, I want to do that. Yeah, it's like that. being in a horror movie. It's pretty in- insane. Get a link to that fucker. Dude, we definitely will. Amongst your travels, are there any horror films that you could recommend that everybody must check out. Okay, there's this Italian movie. I don't know the translation, but um, it's called La Casa con la Fenestra che Ridono. I don't know what they called it in English, but it's The House of Windows That Laugh. That one is creepy as shit. That one's really good. It's like from the, I want to say 70s. That one is a must. La Casa con la Fenestra che Ridono. That one is sick as fuck. Old boy. I'd say old boy. I never had you know a chance to see that yet. Yeah, I've, I know of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, I've never you seen it. Gotta see old boy. No, that's a must. That's a must. Absolute must. Like some outer space shit. Like oh, marooned. That's a good one. I want to say late sixties, early seventies uh, with Gene Hackman. It's an outer space movie. It's not necessarily horror, but it's terrifying because these astronauts get well marooned, like the title of the film, and they're like stuck up there. And a couple of them go watch them systematically go crazy, and it's totally terrifying. Did I mention already THX 1138? We skim by it at the beginning as one of your faves, but yeah, I mean, we'll put that on the list yeah, for sure. See that. Robert Duvall. I mean, first Halloween, come on. You know what else I would say? And probably nobody would call this a horror movie, but No Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers. Best film they ever fucking did. That movie is so solid. Dude, that's a movie that I've seen maybe like four or five times. And every single time that I watch it, like I pick up something new. Yeah. That movie, I don't know why, man, it always sticks with me. I mean, 2001 is Space Odyssey. And I think I mentioned that before, but damn, that one's good. Suspiria. In any Argento movie, but Suspiria is probably the one. Yeah, especially that the Goblin soundtrack is awesome, man. Oh, it's great. It's totally great. I've been in touch with those guys about maybe doing a record together, so... Who knows? <laughs> that would Holy be insane. shit. That'd wow. be <laughs> that would be wow. epic. Well, Mike, thank you so much for spending time with us, man. We will let you thank go. Thank you, man. We appreciate I, uh, it. Hope I delivered okay. No, yeah, man. Yeah, it was, dude, totally, man. Thank you. It was seriously an honor, man. We're, we're huge fans of yours, and that was that was fantastic. Thank you, guys. That was Boo Crew Podcast, episode 83. Special thanks to our guest, Mike Patton. Check out Mike's new project with composer Jean-Claude Vanier called Corpse Flower, available everywhere now. Music featured in this episode from Corpse Flower, Phantomas, and Mr. Bungle. Production music from Power Man 5000 and Knee High Fox. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.